In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Nackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. There's a number of different descriptors I can attach to today's guest on Notably Disney, among them author, podcaster, historian, Disney extraordinaire. It's Michael Crawford, who is the co-host of the Progress City Radio Hour podcast, the person behind the Progress City USA blog. He's written for Disney, worked for them in various capacities, handled a bunch of stuff in unofficially, as I've illustrated. And it's really cool to dive into his career and various experiences within and outside of the Walt Disney Company. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. Author and creative consultant Michael Crawford has lent his skill sets and knowledge of the Mouse House to write and work directly for Disney, as well as detail this knowledge across many spaces, including crafting his Progress City USA blog, and writing the book, The Progress City Primer, Stories, Secrets, and Silliness from the Many Worlds of Disney. I like the alliteration too. He's a true Disney expert, and I'm really excited to talk with him today on Notably Disney to discuss his career, projects, and processes in consuming and disseminating information on Disney history. So welcome to the podcast, Michael. Uh, thank you very much. It's, uh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Well. I know that you have uh, quite a, a background in Disney, and if you can maybe orient listeners uh, to a little bit about your background. I know you visited Walt Disney World a lot growing up. What contributed to your interest in Disney history and being a consumer of Disney? Yeah, I guess I've kind of become a, a sort of professional fan. I um, Our first trip to Walt Disney World was in October of 82, just after Epcot opened. I was very small and barely, 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 barely remember it, but uh, it had a huge impact. And from then on, it was just kind of my obsession as a kid. I was, you know, everybody knows the kid, I guess, in their school who's the Disney nerd and or the Disney kid. And that was me. And 
it was consuming everything I could get my hands on about Disney. And back then you had the Magic Kingdom Club, which you could, uh, you know, your parents would be in from their workplace or something. It was a free thing that Disney would do through people's employers. And um, so we would get Disney news magazines four times a year. So I would just like study those and take them to school and take them everywhere I went and just read all I could about Imagineering and animation and everything I could find out. And so uh, that was really my window into it. And Epcot was my like main obsession. That was my favorite park. And that's really what got me into it. How frequently would you go to Walt Disney World? We would go uh, once a year, usually. Sometimes we'd miss a year. And then, you know, as as we got older, we started going sort of more and more. As I got into my teens, we would maybe go a couple times a year. Uh, so uh, my whole family, we were all, I, you know, I have a brother, uh, my parents, we were all sort of addicted. My aunt, my uncle, and uh things would get out of hand, things, things kind of accelerated as time went by. So we found ourselves going more and more. And, and what you mentioned that you were someone who really just poured through all those Disney news magazines. Were there other materials or items or things that you collected that kind of uh, complemented your Disney fandom? Well, you know, back then the, you didn't just get a map when you came into the park or an app or whatever. I mean, the, the guidebooks they would have for free sponsored by Kodak were like little mini books. And, you know, for Epcot, it would have a, a different pavilion on each page. It would have pictures. Uh, and of course, text have a little map with the layout of the pavilion where everything was. So I like hoarded those like crazy and would take them home and, uh, you know, put them between uh, pieces of loose leaf paper so like the ink wouldn't rub off on each other. And I was such a nerd and still am. And, you know, really protected them and made sure they were well taken care of and would go over them. And, you know, I would write my own little guidebooks um, on like uh, little stenographer notepads and things like that. So you know, anything, there wasn't as much as there is now, obviously, in terms of books and magazines and everything. And so I would go to the library and read, you know, the like the Walt Disney biographies, whatever they had on hand and anything like that. But oh, also the big book, we, we had the uh, uh, Richard Beard, Walt Disney's Epcot book, which uh, I guess my dad had gotten or somebody had gotten on the first trip down there. And so I would read that over and over, the big hardcover version, just over and over and over and over again. So that was a big item. So it was, you know, whatever I could get my hands on. What's really cool about your experience is you, you went to Epcot at its, you know, earliest stage and were able to revisit, it sounds like, at least yearly um, thereafter, pretty frequently, um, which actually parallels what I remember from um, WDW radio and what Lou Mangello said with his experience with Magic Kingdom and going there from the earliest days and, and mm -hmm. seeing its, its progress. And it sounds like for you, Epcot had a, a, a very special place. What about the park resonated with you so, so dearly? I don't know. I think it was just something about the era, the 80s, especially the early 80s. 
was kind of the tail end of the real period of optimistic futurism because you know the space shuttle was just getting started up and there was a lot of sort of futuristic media you know like omni magazine things like that and it was still there was a lot of sci-fi in the air and epcot was just kind of the best of that it was so well designed it was so at that time because it all been created at the same time and the designers had spent so much time coming up with like a visual language to tie it all together uh, the music that tied it all together everything down to the pavilion icons you know each pavilion had their own icon that was the same visual language and it was just a really cool place to be you had these rides you know for a kid who likes rides you know you go to the magic kingdom which is great but you get on those rides like a fantasy land dark ride that's just a couple of minutes long but you'd go to epcot wait and get on these rides they'd be 15 minutes long so you really got your bang for the buck and you had the most advanced sort of special effects and uh animatronics everywhere i mean every ride had you know dozens of animatronics on it and it was just like a real every ride was an e-ticket pretty much and so it just felt epic in a way yeah i think my biggest disappointment is i was born a decade too late because i did not experience epcot for the first time until 99 and by that point that era really much came had come to a close and it's only through you know YouTube and books and other spaces that so many folks have been able to have that vicarious experience. But um, it sounds like you were very much immersed in it during your visits. Totally. And that, you know, that makes, that's something as time has gone by and like you realize you're starting to get old when like, because at some point it was either people who experienced it or people who you know, maybe West Coasters who never made it to Epcot, but knew as it was going on, who like remembered that it existed. Now that we've gotten to the point of, you know, people who just weren't around and it's been nice to see the fandom that has grown up for people who never even experienced it, but who really appreciate it. But yeah, it makes me so sad that there are so many people who never had a ch even had a chance to see it because it's so hard to describe and there's so much there like I said, with special effects, things were so elaborate that they all use like smell effects, things that can't capture on video, you know, uh, video really can't capture how amazing it was. So, you know, I, I feel really bad that these experiences have been lost. Yeah, well, and, and I think that is the, as you're mentioning, the beauty as time has evolved more, um, more recollections of those experiences have come to surface and, and uh, an appreciation for the past too um i mean my like i remember one epcot experience i thoroughly enjoyed during that 99 visit and subsequent ones was visiting the wonders of life pavilion because it wasn't necessarily original but it was one of the few like from the the 80s that was still very much um had a presence but by that point it was already becoming very dated um mm -hmm. world motion was gone the original energy pavilion it was ellen's energy adventure which was still fantastic etc but, um, and your, your, the Richard Beard book that you mentioned, my gosh, that is just, that's one of my favorite books that I own because it is so immersive and has such great concept art of pavilions that never materialized. 
Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's gorgeous. And, you know, all the shots of Imagineers at work and, and you know, as a kid, it's like, oh, gosh, what are they doing? How, you know, how are they doing that? And uh, you really feel like you're kind of an insider because you're getting to see all this stuff uh, that's uh, really, really neat. So as you kind of uh, progressed over time and became I mean, we're all still children at heart, let's be real. But yeah. when our age told us, okay, we're technically an adult, how did you, you know, especially with the advent of the internet becoming much more popular, how did you find new ways of, of consuming Disney when it was no longer just limited to going to a library or picking up a book from the park, for instance? Well, it's funny because I you'll, you'll often hear people who are fans say, you know, I hit an age where it wasn't cool to be a Disney fan. So I kind of took like a few years off and that never happened to me. I, I doubled down. I, I resonate. I, You're not alone. <laughs> yeah. I, I was like, you know, I defy anybody who tells me that uh, this isn't amazing. So, you know, it started off in the early days of the internet. You know, there were, weren't a lot of places to go. Uh, and Usenet news groups, uh, Rec Arts Disney, even I was on that even before it split into like Rec Arts Disney Parks and Rec Arts Disney Animation and things like that. And so, you know, you had your whole cast of characters. And it's so funny to look at that now. It's kind of the seeds of what became the Disney Internet, because a lot of the people who became big names were all there just sort of as random people. You had the a little later, you had the Yahoo message groups there was a big horizons group on there and george mcginnis who was the lead um art director for horizons you know he was on there hanging out and you know a lot of people that people would probably know were also on there just sort of anonymously i've come to find out in recent years and you know a lot of epcot little message boards and things like that so that was always enjoyable and i started my own site around I'll say 96 or 97, probably 96, an Epcot website, because at the time, you know, Horizons was kind of under threat. And so I started a website about saving Horizons. And then I started a website. It's just going to be a guide to the park with all sorts of like history and information. And I, I never finished it. You know, I, I, I would do a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, but it never got totally done so you know just dabbling around and it made it easier to find information you know books you had never heard of uh, you know things things that you didn't remember from your youth that other people like were around an adult and would document at the time and so it just made information a lot more accessible yeah it's it's interesting to think back um like i feel like my earliest connection to non-Disney fan, like non-Disney official websites was like, you know, uh, like mouseinfo.com or mouse planet. And yeah. like, the, like the, like right at the edge of the millennium was when I was, I was, you know, a, a, in an elementary school that very engaged and trying to like, Oh my gosh, I can look at pictures of the parks and not be looking at a physical book. It's, it's such a unfamiliar concept. So, yeah. I mean, the first site I remember was because Al Lutz would do his updates on Usenet, but then he started doing the Disneyland Information Guide, 
and would have his uh, his promote Paul Pressler program when he was trying to have a positive way to get Paul Pressler out of Disneyland. So he wanted him promoted and uh, had a whole campaign there and he would have his sort of weekly Disneyland gossip updates. And so that's the first website that I remember. But, you know, that was an era where things grew so quickly or changed so quickly. So we went through in just a period of about five years from all these Usenet communities to all these message boards and then to all the websites and then all those big websites, like you mentioned, all started to like appear. So a lot changed really, really fast. And, uh, you know, this was the time leading up to the time a little bit after this is when I started to get into college and I could use, you know, databases to look up stuff and like LexisNexis back when that was a thing. And you could look up, you know, old news articles about Disney and really start doing some research. And, and I noticed in, in looking, looking at your LinkedIn that your, your, ba your bachelor's was uh, in psychology, but yes. not history, which you, it looks like you earned later. Yeah, I went. I went back and uh, I, I finished. I finished the history because I realized I had I had gotten so many credits in history just from taking history classes that I can realize it's like, oh, well, I'm pretty close to having a history degree if I just take a few more classes. So I did that. But but yeah, I started off as a. I went through a couple of things. Um, you know, I wanted to get into entertainment somehow, but. Their communications program was, I, I don't know, they were changing the way they did things. And anyway, long story short, I wound up a psychology major and wound up doing like some, you know, research and working in a research environment and things like that. And, uh, you know, working in academic circles. So how did your transition to like making your Disney fandom something that would be more widely appreciated materialized. I know Progress City USA started in 07. Is mm -hmm. that right? Yeah, I think well, so. What was what what led up to that point for you? Well, there had started to be blogs that were like really deep history uh, websites or blogs. Like Widen Your World was really the first one. Uh, then Foxy started doing Passport to Dreams Old and New. Uh, you had Martin Smith who was doing his videos. He didn't really have a site, but he was doing his videos. And that really showed a path forward for my interests. And, you know, I started thinking, as I said, I had had that website at, that I had never really finished. So I was like, well, maybe I could do it, start again with a blog. And that way you could just do it a little bit by bit by bit and then slowly accumulate a body of work. So I just started doing that as a hobby. Um, just because I, by then I really started to accumulate. I mean, we'd entered the days of eBay where you could get old books and old magazines and old documents. And so things were starting to pile up at my house. And I just thought, you know, this would be a fun little hobby. And I've just found more and more of my time was devoted to that. And I would, you know, look forward to getting off work to when I could work on the blog. And I would find myself working on my blog during work and, you know, doing the research, you know, in another browser tab, you know, uh, during work. And so it just kind of escalated. And through the, through the thing, I got to, you know, meet more and more people 
who were sort of professional people in the Disney sphere and who would like read or find it somehow and comment and I'd be like, oh my gosh, this person commented on my blog. That's insane. And so I did this series of posts for the 100th anniversary of Herb Ryman, the great Imagineer and animator and artist and genius. And I had a few people that I had gotten to know by that point uh, write little, little sort of homages to him. And then I did a, you know, a, just a survey of his entire life and wrote a bunch of posts about it. So one day I was working in a sort of an office administration job at, at a department at the university. I did not care for the job at, at all. I was, I was just ready to get out of there. And so I got an email right as I was about to go to lunch and the, the subject said something about Diane Disney. I'm like, Oh, who's emailing me about Diane Disney? So I opened up and it was an email from Walt's daughter, Diane Disney Miller, because somebody had forwarded her one of the stories that I had written about her Bryman and her dad. And it was a, just a super nice, super encouraging email. Um, just, just really, really nice. And so I was like, okay. So I, I was just as I was going to go to lunch. So I just kind of like floated down to lunch and like texted everybody that I could think of to text and probably, you know, called my parents or something. I was like, ah, um, I just got an email from Diane Disney Miller. And so that was about the point where I was like, all right, I, I need to be doing this for real because I love this. This is, I need to figure out a way somehow to be doing this for real. And so that's kind of a moment where everything really crystallized for me. Yeah. It's not every day that you can say that Walt Disney's child emails you. <laughs> no. And it was like, whoa, what do I do now? You know, it was, it was a crazy moment. So I, I guess I'm wondering, Michael, just from a timing perspective, because I know that you also wrote for the Walt Disney Family Museum. Did that, did that f immediately follow this interaction or was that years later? Because of course we know that it was Diane Disney Miller and Ron Miller who, were, who made that place a reality. Right. Uh, that came slightly later. That came through uh, Jeff Curdy, the great Disney oh, sure. historian and author. Who, um, who was one of the people that I'd gotten to do a little reminisce about Herb Ryman for that series of stories. He's the one who actually showed the story to Diane. And so he, he was responsible for that, I found out later. So I, we had, he knew who I was. And at some point um, they were looking for just sort of freelance authors or freelance writers to write some posts for different things. And it just so happened that one of the stories they were uh, planning to do was about something sort of related to, you know, I'm from North Carolina, related to an area of North Carolina that I'm really familiar with where my grandparents came from uh, that also has a Disney connection. And so I was like, oh, that's perfect. I'll, I'll do that. So I, I wrote that story and then uh, I wrote a couple of others. And 
so so that was a really cool opportunity to you know write something and that was probably the first time i had written something that had been published you know not on just my own blog but you know somewhere real quote unquote so it sounds like was that perhaps the beginning of your role in more of a consulting writing capacity for different entities because i know d23 follow thereafter yeah it was sort of it was about that time where i was starting to really put out feelers um, to people and you know express that i was interested in this sort of stuff and it it just kind of all hit at once it uh, it's like it all kind of hit a critical mass of you know people realizing that i was out there and you know this was the time when d23 was starting to have their expos they had their first expo in 2009 my brother and i went and i got to you know run into a lot of these people in person for the first time so you know you make connections and you network which is a word i don't really love but that's kind of what you do and so it just i got to know people that i had known sort of peripherally before and so these things just kind of started to happen yeah at first, D23 Expo almost felt like it. we we all knew that it, there was something special here, but I don't think we realized, I, I was there too, and it's like we didn't realize quite the degree to which it would have an impact so many years later, right? Was this just going to be like a one or two time thing, or would it actually become an every other year major, now humongous worldwide media event? Right. It was so surreal. And because that was the first time I'd ever been to Disneyland. It was the first time I had ever been to California. Oh, wow. It was the first time, you know, so many West Coast fans grew up in this era of, you know, you could go to a Disneyana convention and see the Nine Old Men or whoever was left of the Nine Old Men and, you know, all these legendary uh, Imagineers. I had never experienced any of that. I had never met an Imagineer. I had never, you know, met an animator. So I go to that and of all the things got like press credential for my blog, which is so silly in retrospect now that it's such a huge media event. But, you know, we'd go to these panels and you'd have, uh, you know, a little press conference with like Alice Davis and Exotensio and uh, Bob Gurr, of course, was there. And, uh, you know, a lot of people who aren't around anymore. And, you know, like Exotensio answered my question at a press conference. I was like, this is insane. This is bizarre. And like I met Tony Baxter and I was like, I never in my life thought I would meet somebody like that ever. So it was a really surreal experience and uh, learning a lot about history that I'd never learned about before, especially about Disneyland history and, you know, meeting all these historians and like people that I really admired their work. It was, it was really wild. It was a crazy experience. Yeah, it sounds like it. I think for me, I went to the first three and then subsequently the one in 2019. But for me, it was almost that sense of like, I knew there were major Disney fans that exist in the world because of websites like yours and discussion boards and all these different platforms. But it's like really that feeling of, of community and a sense of kinship over the fact that like we have our very niche, interesting passions within Disney and then like a, a quite a, a a fondness for the legacy of the company. And I think the expo, and certainly Disneyana had existed, as you mentioned, but I think for so many, the expo represented that that watershed moment that like this, this community is vast and rich. Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. 
and you know through that community met a lot of people who are really good friends now so it's a real unexpected turn of events but really a really good one and and can you can we maybe transition then to how you started uh writing for d23 and in, in different capacities well so i had got it in my head that i was going to um do this for real and i got a uh, there was a possibility that i was going to be able to do some work for a company uh, a, a former imagineer who had his own design studio out there in california and so i you know was just kind of tired with my situation so i packed up everything i could into my car which was not very large and um set out for california and wanted it to be one of these big sort of existential things so of course i took a longer route so i could go through uh, marceline where you know walt grew up uh, which i had never been to before and through kansas sure. city where he grew also grew up and so i it's so funny as i was on the road to marceline like the state highway or whatever it is the little two-lane road i got a call from somebody i knew who uh, worked for the archives and did stuff for d23 and said that they were uh thinking about i believe the thing they were thinking about at this time was the upcoming epcot anniversary and they wanted to um have me consult on, you know, like merchandise ideas and just what could be done, you know, things that could be done for the anniversary. I think that's what they were asking, they asked about first. And so the surreal nature of like being on the road to Marceline, not really knowing, you know, going to California, but not knowing what was going to really be there for me to do when I got there. And then being on the road to Marceline and then having a call out of nowhere with like, would you be interested in this was one of those like, the planets aligning in a freaky way. So, you know, I saw Marceline, I saw Kansas City, I saw the Laffergram studio, I saw Walt's house, all that stuff, and uh, made my way to California. And so just started slowly dipping my toe into, you know, whatever I could bug them into letting me do. Um, you know, first started consulting on, I guess it was Epcot's 30th anniversary you know like oh what would be fun for merchandise what would be fun for content and then eventually i wound up presenting at that and you know it was just always like you know guys what else i'd like to do more i'd like to do more what else can i do and uh, you know i wound up writing some stuff for the magazine for the 23 magazine that was a lot of fun doing a lot of content for their website they had a big relaunch of their website one time and i did a lot of stuff for that and you know a little more consulting on events and it really came to a head when uh, the 2014 destination d which was attraction rewind and world's fair and i was i don't know kind of the creative coordinator for that whole thing of like putting together the list of presentations, who was going to present, what they were going to present, and then kind of helping put it all together. Um, so th that was a lot of fun because both of those things were totally in my wheelhouse. So I really, really enjoyed that. Hearing about this, it, 
it almost seems like it would be surreal considering that you were a child of Epcot's earliest ages, earliest years, and then to be able to produce an event commemorating the 30th anniversary. Totally, totally surreal. Totally bizarre to be able to like dig through the archives. And I mean, you know, they had just boxes of stuff from different people's offices and that no one had ever actually like really looked through to see what was in it. And so I would just go file by file. And this is where you found a lot of the, a lot of weird stuff. Uh, you know, those alternate Epcot logos that they've, they've used in displays over recent years um, and, and articles original sort of ideas for different Epcot logos, John Hinch's idea for Captain Salty Hinder, a walk around character for the Living Seas. It was a joke character, but it was still amazing. Uh, you know, a lot of that stuff that no one had laid eyes on. And here I am like digging it out. And I would, I would be in the archives going through these boxes and I would go like running to somebody, you know, like, oh, you've got to see this. You've got to see this. This is unbelievable. We got to put this in. So yeah, there was a whole file of stuff from uh, Apple when uh, they thought about having Apple or Apple kind of wanted to be a sponsor of uh, a, an arcade in Communicore and at the very, very start of Epcot and all these memos back and forth about, like, I don't know, these, we, these kids are really weird. These Apple kids are just a bunch of kids. We don't know if they know anything about computers and we had a meeting with them and they're very young. And, you know, I hear that uh, Tandy is the P Tandy is the company to talk to about computers, Apple, I don't know. And eventually, you know, Apple didn't have the money to uh, be involved. They wanted to, but they didn't have the cash to be involved. So stuff like that, that you've never heard of. And then to be on stage, you know, with actual at an event where there are actual real people, you know, people who really worked on the part, people who really contributed, and then me there, like a goofball. Uh, it is, yeah, it's totally surreal. And and how did you navigate this, considering you were consulting for Disney, but I also know in 2015 is when your book debuted. So given that you had insider knowledge and, and access, but you are also, uh, you know, writing your own book, how, how did you make sense of, like, establishing those boundaries or putting things in certain boxes yeah you got to be careful um you've got to be careful you've got to um keep certain things in certain folders on your hard drive that don't ever cross paths into the other folders you know into the file of things that you might put out on twitter you know there are things that are do not put on twitter sort of things um well that came the book came during kind of a lag in a, a very brief lag in things that I was working on. And it was mostly composed of things that I had written on the blog in previous years. Um, so it wasn't like I was doing, a, there was new content, but it was basically based on my own research. So uh, yeah, there, there's definitely a line there, but it was, it was pretty easy to do because I had accumulated such a library of, resource and documentation of my own and you know i still i still use that for like the podcast and other things i do so you know you have to know mentally what you got from a source that can't be used and what what you got from your own you know 
something you got off of eBay. So, yeah, but that is a consider a definite consideration. And during this time, were you also still curating a lot of the documents and ephemera from over the years of of Disney parks and and stuff along those lines? Oh yeah, I've still got all and. In fact, in my closet here, which is almost impossible to enter at this point, I've got still, I've got the, all the maps that I was talking about earlier from when I was a kid and I've still got them in there. I keep them separate from the ones I've gotten off of like eBay and other places, you know, my sort of research collection. I keep my, you know, my personal, my personal store of things separate because those are, those are treasures. But yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I, I've held on to everything. Well, and I imagine some of those are in like, uh, I don't know, specific, ba- like, I don't know, Ziploc bags or, yes. or protected in particular ways, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Could you share um, about your experiences in the role of a show writer, if, if any? Yeah, so I had a chance, this was about 2015, uh, to do a little show writing for uh, Walt Disney Imagineering. And at that time, I decided it would be probably better for me to be in Orlando, back on the East Coast, because I wanted to, you know, my family and friends and everything are back in North Carolina. So it would be nice to be back on the East Coast, be a little bit closer. And to be in a sort of a climate and environment that I'm a little more familiar with and uh, that is uh, also much cheaper to live in than LA. So I, uh, I came back here and spent the next several years uh, doing uh, consulting, like freelance consulting uh, as a show writer for Imagineering. And uh, that's been a lot of fun. I get to do a lot of gallery work for World Showcase. We did the Kauai exhibit that's there in the Japan Pavilion, which I love. Uh, That was the first big thing I got to work on. And it was so much fun. I mean, talk about a nerdy project, being able to research all this, all these mascots and cute, cute culture of Japan. Um, So that that was a lot of fun. So I've I've had a, a chance to work on a number of projects for those. And I'm currently working on some things for Epcot, which should be pretty exciting. And yeah, it's it's just been a delight. Everybody's so nice and supportive, and um, it's it's just been a really great experience. Would you be able to help those who are unfamiliar of what a show writer actually does in terms of uh, whether it be coming up with elements of the theme or the plaques or or background information on the visuals that are displayed. Could you could you help orient some of us onto what those tasks entail? Yeah, because even like even my friends back home who aren't like Disney people are like, so what do you write? Like show like stage shows or like do I write movies or but the, the answer is, you know, you write kind of everything. You start off, you can do everything from concept development, like when it's like, all right, what is this going to be from blank page? All right, we need a, say it's a new ride or something. Well, what kind of ride is it going to be? What's it going to be about? What's, you know, just the most fundamental basic notion of what you're going to do. 
And then, all right, so what's the theme? What's the story for it? Um, and you and you and you just build as the experience of building up and like getting a general idea, then getting more specific, then writing treatments that have to get approved. And it's just the art of getting more and more specific. You have to get up to a level of specificity that the people who know how to do estimating can estimate how much this will cost to get it approved further and so there's a level of specificity you have to have for that so i mean there are these genius people who are like oh well that'll take this much concrete and that'll cost this much money and i don't know how they know but they know and so it gets up to where you're writing really detailed descriptions of things um, you're writing show graphics which are everything from a label on a prop to a big sign you're writing uh, scripts for narration or for um, shows you could write live entertainment you could write um, instructional stuff didactic didactic stuff like for the, for the exhibits you know little plaques that tell you you know a little bit of history or things like that you write spiels and you write uh, show documentation. You know, even after it's open, you have to document the project so people can maintain it. So you, and you have to explain the story so everybody knows what what it's about. So there are a million different things that you can do, and that kind of keeps it exciting. Are in those roles, and I recognize that every experience has its differences. Are there other show writers you're working with collaboratively, or in certain spaces, are you essentially spearheading? the the narrative efforts for like those exhibits that you mentioned oh i mean everything is super super collaborative um, i mean you've got art directors you've got other writers you know it, every you're very rarely if ever just there on your own doing anything i mean it would be something super duper small because you know you want to get as many minds in there as possible to get as many good ideas as possible. And, you know, even if you're the lead writer on something, you bounce it off of other people, other people look at it. Uh, you're always, you know, you have art directors and you have uh, production directors. And I mean, there are, there are many, many people who have eyes on things. So uh, yeah, it's, it's super collaborative all the way through. Well, I appreciate that that over recent years, there seems to be a, a more salient investment in exhibits and World Showcase and, and certain other spaces, because I feel like that adds to the enjoyment of the Epcot experience, that it's not just the, the rides and the shows, but it's these, by all intents and purposes, like smaller venues to, to engage and to learn. So I, I certainly hope that trend um, continues because it enables guests to have a, I think a more reflective experience as they would be if they were going to Washington DC or any other major metropolitan area and can go into a museum. This offers a little taste of that. I totally agree. And this is what, when I was working heavily on the galleries, I helped, I helped with a few of them. And I would always say, you know, on Twitter, but like hashtag always visit the galleries because They've got a great, great team of people who are 
who work on those. And it's not just at Epcot. It's, you know, there's that gallery in front of American, um, not American Adventure, Hall of Presidents. Yes. Kingdom. Yes. Uh, it's, I mean, you have real valuable historical artifacts in there. And there are a team of very professional, very dedicated people who maintain all these galleries. And they are real treasures. A lot of people who go to Epcot, even like longtime people, they don't realize that these galleries are even there. And I, you know, if anybody is listening and hasn't made it to those, I would really encourage them to go to the galleries because they're such fun. They're so informative and they're just nice little pockets of calm in the middle of, you know, in the middle of the theme park universe. Yeah, I enjoyed checking out the Shanghai Disney exhibit on on my last time there. And mind you, obviously, all of us know it's been open for the past six years. But but how many folks don't here in the states have the opportunity to head over there? So, I mean, it is cool to see some of these models and maquettes and different ideas as far as uh, graphic design um, for for what those uh, lands and spaces ultimately ended up resembling. Totally, that's that's another one that I worked on and. It was so much fun to get a sneak peek of what was coming to Shanghai, which was a park that I knew nothing about. And of course, we to do the gallery, we had to get a little sneak peek of what was coming. So that was a lot of fun. And it was so much fun to be able to take like my family in that gallery and be like, all right, and like explain what this park was going to be like. So yeah, that was a lot of fun. So Michael, what does your, how would you describe your process of consuming Disney information now? I recognize you've had these different roles, both directly for Disney, doing stuff on your own, but like when you wake up at the beginning of the day, like how do you, how do you process like, oh, like I really want to learn more about this topic or are there continued areas of inquiry that you simply haven't explored in the past that you're just, that really strikes your fancy? I know that's a rather vague and open-ended question, but I am curious as someone who's constantly embedded in Disney history and research and, and wanting to preserve it in many ways too. No, that's, that's a great question. And it's, it's hard because there's always more to learn. And for instance, you know, my sort of, I always say like I've majored in the parks so I don't know as much as I would like to. I like I've always read about animation. I love animation. I just don't know about enough as much about it and the people behind it as I do about the people behind the parks. It's because there are only so many hours in the day. So there are still there's still so much to learn. Like I'm one of those people. I, I know there are a lot of people who are like Disney scholars who could tell you everything off the top of their heads. And I'm not like that kind of person. Like I know where to look for things. It's like, I know I read that at some point and I know where it is, but I'll have to look it up to tell you. So like for our pod, you know, we do this podcast, uh, the Progress City Radio Hour. And every month we have to decide, you know, what are we going to talk about? And it's always hard to figure out because you have so much to pull from. So that spurs a lot of, you know, what my day-to-day thinking is, because usually if I'm doing research, it's researching what we're going to talk about on the next podcast. So we just kind of try and come up with a theme that's interesting for that month and then just sort of brainstorm what are elements from Disney history that kind of fit within that theme. And then we go off and research. So that has, that's been a good way that's kind of kept me in it 
research-wise, at like spurring me to look at things I might not have otherwise looked at, you know. So that's been a fun exercise uh, that's kept me kept me kind of fresh, I guess you'd say. Seems like that's the mechanism to almost because the episode is a product of the research that you've invested. I really enjoyed the one because I've I'm a huge uh, appreciate, I have a huge appreciation for Tomorrowland. And so yeah. I really enjoyed your episode where you focused on some of those early Disneyland TV series episodes on like yeah. Yeah. Mars and beyond, like all those, those are, those are great. So it's nice to, to, because I feel like, a, and I love such a variety of dis- different Disney podcasts, but it's nice when certain folks like yourselves, like you, you really look into the, you know, the outer reaches of, of Disney to, to kind of, uncover it that's really what we wanted to do because there's so many podcasts i mean there are great 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 podcasts but so many are focused on one era or one i mean probably i'd say 99 percent of the podcasts are focused just on theme parks or even on one theme park like most most podcasts are about just disney world uh, which is great because i mean that's what i'm interested in too but for people like me and my brother who grew up on, you know, in the era of Disney Channel, back when they really showed deep cuts from the Disney catalog, right. uh, every afternoon there was a syndicated show on one of the channels coming out of Charlotte that was The Wonderful World of Disney that would be an hour-long cut from one of his old anthology shows. So we were constantly absorbing the back catalog, these old programs, all this Walt era stuff, all these old movies. And there's nothing, there's not much out there that really talks about the sort of holistic Disney history of like theme parks. Yes. Also live action film, also television, also animation. Like you said, like Mars and beyond stuff like that. But it all ties together. Like when you look at the arc of Disney history, it's all connected together. And so that's what we really wanted to do was to talk about things that maybe other people weren't talking about as much. So that's been really fun to do. Yeah, when, when you're talking about that, it makes me think of my initial exposure just by virtue of when I grew up to like old Disney content was Walt Disney on yes. Disney Channel. And to think of how so much of that unfortunately has been lost to time unless people recorded and put it on YouTube because, you know, uh, Disney plus has only released like little, little pieces of that content on the platform, which is, is disappointing. And ultimately hopefully that'll change as time persists because there's that base of fans who, who appreciate that, that old content. Yeah. And I'm, again, I think of, you know, it's like we were talking about with old Epcot, I think about like the kids today, like my brother's kids will be fine because they've got him who grew up on this stuff and he knows what to show them. But, you know, as kids, we just pick this up, pick this stuff up by osmosis. Like no one sat us down and showed us, you know, like million dollar duck or whatever, you know, the ugly dachshund or Mars and beyond. We just absorbed it because it was around us. And I feel bad for the kids today who aren't going to, have that experience because like you said it, it it's on youtube maybe if somebody recorded off a tv back then but you have to look for it and disney plus only has really a handful of anthology show episodes at all and even missing some of the best ones 
So it's really unfortunate, and it's something I hope they really, I, I, I hope it's something they really come to embrace at some point. I, I am very much in alignment there. And you have also played a role in preserving Disney history through a variety of different efforts, including your Progress City Public Library, which I just love the notion because we all we started this conversation talking about how you pour through books at the library. And essentially, you've been digitizing what seems to be hundreds of different documents, eyes and ears, newsletters, and, and much more that Disney's America um, guide uh, that you uh, uncovered. Can you talk about that process of of not only having curated all of this, but making it widely accessible in a very open access manner? Yeah. So, you know, over the years, I've just amassed a ton of documents and a ton of ton of things and, you know, realized at some point, you know, it, it doesn't do me any good to just sit on it. And a lot of the stuff that circulates out there, you know, I'm always glad for people to share knowledge, but sometimes, you know, you'll find something and it's not a really good scan and like you really want to see an image, but it's really not great quality. And so at some point I was like, well, I'll just do it myself. And thanks to the Internet Archive, which gives you boundless space to upload and share things. uh, And you can, this can all be reached through library.progresscityusa.com if anybody wants to look, but I've started, I had scanned in so much stuff for my own use, because then once it's all scanned in, you can do like text search and find things in the, you know, OCR PDFs and, you know, it's easy to find when you're doing research. So I decided, well, I'll just share all this stuff. So you know, have slowly been uploading. Like you said, now there are 350 documents. I took kind of a summer break, but there are 350 different documents there and there will be more soon. And it's just kind of sharing the wealth because it's gotten harder and harder to find this kind of stuff out there and way more expensive. Things on eBay now are just ridiculous. So I figure I'll just, you know, crash the market and share with everybody, I guess. Did this require you to purchase like a high quality scanner? What was that process like to translate all of these digitally? Right. Well, I've got a scanner. Uh, I already had a scanner, which I just used for my own means, but it is super time consuming because I scan everything at very high resolution. Again, going back to the, I want everything to be the best quality possible because if you're going to do it, you might as, you might as well do it right. And if people are going to be using this for, you know, other purposes, then I want them to have a good quality scan of it. So scan everything at high, at high um, resolution and then PDF it and then do text recognition on it and then upload it with all the metadata and everything. So it is kind of time consuming, but hopefully, you know, hopefully people will find it worthwhile and enjoyable at least. I think it's very cool, and you're right. It it saves it saves folks a lot of money for those who are like you who want to amass everything. But also, right. it it does it does reinforce that notion of knowledge is power. And since we have the mechanisms to spread it, why not take full advantage of that? So, right. and um, I do want to give a shout out because I've had some very very nice people contact me uh, who have collections of their own who are 
looking to downsize and things like that and asking if they can contribute. So that has been, I just find that super, super nice of them to do. And now that we've established ourselves as a nonprofit organization, since I'm very good at not making a profit, uh, we are officially a nonprofit. So anybody who makes their donations, I, I tell them it's now tax deductible. So oh, wow. get, get rid of those, get rid of those old documents. So uh, we've had some people take us up on it and I really appreciate it. So does that mean your closet has been overflowing even more if, yes. if you've been gathering? Okay. Yes. It's really an emergency situation, but it's a good situation. So I must ask, as we kind of uh, begin to wrap up, what are the most prized Disney treasures that you own? Well, that Beard Epcot book would be one of them, definitely. I got a, there's a bronze statue of Figment and Dreamfinder that I finally found. It, it was in the Disney News when I was a kid, uh, one of the first articles we got back in probably 83 had an, had an article about merchandise at Epcot and it had a picture of this bronze statue of Figment and Dreamfinder. And I thought, oh man, that would be so cool. That would be so cool to have. That's so neat because I love that ride so much. So, you know, 30, probably, I don't know, however many years later, one actually popped up on eBay. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. So I was like, I, I was like, I must have this. So my little Figment and Dreamfinder, I love, but you know, everything doesn't have to be fancy. I, I just love all my, like, bric-a-brac of things. But, yeah, that Beard Epcot book is probably my most treasured. Yeah, I can I can see that, especially if, because it's so, it's it's a tome. It's a, it's a big book, and there's a lot to consume there, both visually and in terms of the narrative and the history and what ultimately never came to reality. So it seems like that's one worth revisiting, too. Totally. So what, what's next for you as you uh, continue to disseminate documents to the masses and, and beyond? What, what's kind of on, on your mind over the coming months in terms of your priorities? Well, we're uh, looking to amp things up a little bit with the podcast. We've got a great episode coming up about, you know, if you want to talk about obscurities, we're going to do one about uh, the Great Locomotive Chase, which is a 1957 uh movie that was filmed uh, right over the North Carolina border in the mountains of Georgia and on a little railroad that one of my, I guess will be my great uncle actually worked on. So uh, we're, we're doing a dive into that and we've got some really great interviews coming up. So we just really want to increase the sort of cadence of episodes and you know, do more. We've talked about getting into doing videos, which I'm excited about doing, uh, trying to figure out ways we can incorporate more video content. And of course, adding more stuff to the library. I've got a, a lot of stuff to put on there. So hopefully people will check it out and enjoy it. Michael, along the lines of with your library, do you, do you ever have like specific requests as far as like putting a call out there like, hey, like I'm looking for uh, content on um, Westcott, like, does anybody have any documents related to that? Or is it more of just people donate what they, what they have in their collections? I haven't had that happen yet. Uh, I've only been doing this publicly since about uh, April or May, but I'm sure it will come to that. I, I think there, 
there are definitely places that I've gone to like do sort of open solicitations of things. Um, you know, since we started, it's been basically going for the low hanging fruit, but I'm sure as we go along and as I go through the things that are more widely found, we'll get into like looking for people with specific collections of things because yeah, Westcott's a good example. Westcott's something I'd really like to get into. So uh, yeah, there's, there are always things that I'm on the lookout for and uh, yeah, hopefully we'll find some people with some, with some troves of stuff to share for sure. Very cool. Well, I, for one, appreciate the, the work you're doing and the, the, you know, I think the, the symbolism of it too, as I mentioned, I think there's a lot of utility in, in utilizing these platforms to, to spread knowledge and to spread good and to spread and, you know, material that folks wouldn't have the means to obtain otherwise. So I, I, I do commend you and appreciate you for that. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. I, I just think if you've got it, you may as well share it because you never know what cool thing someone might find and come up with. Absolutely. Well, let's wrap up with some uh, Disney opinion related questions. I'm going to ask you, uh, as you know, this podcast focuses on Disney music and books primarily and some uh, threads in between. Uh, so I'm going to ask you a few music related questions, a couple of book questions, and then a random Disney question. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So first off, what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? Probably Little Mermaid because that came at right. Uh, well, I'll say uh, two answers. One would be just the original Walt Disney World soundtrack album, like the LP, because we had that. Uh, movie soundtrack would be Little Mermaid because that came out kind of at the right time where I was like a tween and had a, a Walkman or Walkman equivalent and had the tape for that. So, you know, I could listen to it whenever I wanted. So, uh, yeah, Park soundtrack would be that original LP and movie would be Little Mermaid. Good deal. I, I'm not surprised that there are two answers associated with that. Uh, what? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's too hard to pick one. Uh, what Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Oh my gosh, that's a good question. Probably, uh, yeah, on the front porch from Summer Magic. I get that stuck in my head a lot. I'll just kind of like have that going as I go through the day, just kind of in the background. And you know, you're a true Disney fan if that's the one that comes instantly. To yeah, it's a Sherman, a Sherman classic, a Sherman Brothers classic. Good deal. And what Disney film do you feel has the most underrated? music well i'm always tempted to go with three caballeros as underrated just in general and i think that would probably apply to its music as well i i it is such a weird weird little movie that i don't think people are uh people appreciate but also summer magic because uh another callback summer magic it's all sherman brothers and it's all songs that people probably know from like area music in the parks but they don't know that that is what that song is. They don't know that they know the song. So that's a good one too. Yeah, that's true. Main Street has that uh, effect, right? With all the instrumental versions of some of those 60s mm-hmm. era songs that call back a different era. Um, in terms of books, what is the most recent Disney book that you've read? Let me see. Uh, probably the uh, 50th anniversary, the one that... Uh, 
Timidate, Kim Kern, and Steve Magnini did the the fiftieth. That's the most recent one. That's a nice co coffee co table book. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I'm always in favor of more books like that for sure. Yeah, and if you could write a Disney book on any topic besides what you've already covered, of course, mm -hmm. uh, what would it be about? Definitely development of Epcot. That's something I've been working on a long time. So something I hope to actually do. Uh, the development of it from throughout the 70s and into the early 80s. There's a lot to talk about. It would be a, a deeper dive than the Richard Beard book, I, I presume. Oh, yeah. It would be just absurdly detailed. I would, I've always thought I'll put a warning on the cover saying, you, you really don't need to read this unless you're just a real nerd like me. But yeah, real deep dive. Very nice. And your random question is, so this is different with every guest, what is one trend or fad from Disney's past that you would bring back? So maybe something short-lived that just, you know, never, never materialized into something big. That is a great question. Oh my gosh. Trend from the past. Gosh, there's so many. Um, gosh, I don't know. It, it's hard to say. I'm trying to think. It could be a food. It could be an event. It could be um, something with, I don't know, like Disney regional I would bring entertainment. Back, I would bring back the, like, the big like TV special. I feel like they don't do that anymore. You know, in the Eisner era, they always had these real big um, TV specials would be like previews of upcoming stuff. It would have, I think of like the Disneyland 35th special, which I don't know if you've ever seen, but it's so bananas with... Michael Jackson's in that, right? Not, not in the 35th. And the 35th is... The oh, 35th. Was, I was thinking earlier. <laughs> like uh, Tony Danza Tony and Danza. it's got okay. the cast of Cheers and it's got it's got like everything they could throw in at the time and it's really crazy so i'd, I'd bring by that back those were always enjoyable gotcha i was thinking of the 25th of disneyland which i think he yes. was part of yeah he was in that one i got my years mixed up but and i, I remember too, and thankfully some of these are on many of these are on youtube but like john ritter with the living seas pavilion yes. like all these yeah i mean they really made like everything a huge event so it's everything was a big event. I, I kind of missed that and would get its own TV special with like that same group. I always love seeing John, John Ritter did the opening of uh, Disney MGM as well. So uh, always, always excited to see. Yeah. Yeah. I, I quite enjoy it. This was more of when I was a, a child, but it was um, Colin Mockery from Whose Line Is It Anyway? And I think um, Ryan's tiles or, or some or one, yeah. one of his colleagues um through california adventure so yes yes yeah 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 and so much of that was like silly scripted stuff but it's like oh i'm gonna run into one of the soap stars and here's john lassiter at a, it's uh yeah tough to be a bug and all that so yeah totally totally those are great okay let's spear spearhead that effort then michael um wrapping up how can listeners 
follow your work, follow the podcast and, and any other stuff that you might have in development, including contributing to the Progress City Public Library. Well, uh, they can always find me on Twitter at Progress City USA. Uh, also, progresscityusa.com. They can email me from there. Um, you can uh, find the podcast uh, through that main page, also podcast.progresscityusa.com. You can find the library through there as well. And uh, we're on Patreon at patreon.com slash progresscityusa. And uh, that's a way to get sort of sneak peeks of everything we're doing. And like we try and give like Patreon people early access to every the early access, not only to episodes, but to like special content and to uh, all of the library stuff before it gets posted. So they get to download it in one full swoop. So we try and like hook them up in different ways. And it's now tax deductible. So uh, yeah, there are a lot of ways to find me, but uh, just check out the main blog and if you want to email and I'd love to hear from everybody. Wonderful. Michael, super appreciate your time and these stories and, and your efforts with digitizing those documents as well. Um, yeah, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Thank you. And my thanks go out again to Michael Crawford for joining me on Notably Disney. Clearly, he's played a very pivotal role in recent years in terms of making it more accessible to glean context on different aspects of Disney history. Certainly, the Progress City Public Library is playing a key role on that front, and his various efforts from the podcasting to the book, the blog, and so much more, it's really amazing how much he's been able to contribute kind of from the periphery, but then also within Disney, um, as we'll see and hear more projects from him that emerge in the coming years. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at Reports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N Reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.